these are the best Sundays, right? The absolute best Sundays because we get to see a picture, a visual of the gospel. And it's actually fantastic that we get to see it this morning because we're concluding a four-part series called The Greatest Story where we've looked at these four major movements of the Bible. And so in reflection, as we, as we look at where we're at and how the story unfolds, we can also apply it to what we saw here. We realize you were created by God for a purpose, to create and to cultivate in a perfect world with a perfect relationship with you and God and humanity with one another, but you've blown it. Like we've all blown it and there's no undoing what you've done to disqualify yourself from the presence of God. You can't undo the ways you've been unholy, unrighteous. You can't undo the ways that you have been sinful. Your only hope is Jesus. Seriously, your only hope is Jesus. He lived the life you couldn't and died the death you deserved. And if you trust Jesus, his righteous life will count for you. You have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus shed for you. That's the story of redemption that we talked about last week. Been redeemed by the blood of Jesus shed for you. That's what baptism represents. Death and resurrection. The person being baptized is declaring this. They surrender to Jesus. And in Christ, they've died to sin and risen to life in him. And that truth of being redeemed, of surrender to Jesus, has implications now and forever. So that's what leads us to the final movement of our series, restoration. Have you ever watched a movie that's left you hanging? My wife and I, we finished a, a mini-series not long ago on Netflix, and we were like, that's it? Is there another episode? What happens? Isn't that the worst? Have you ever listened to a song that doesn't resolve? Like it ends in a minor with dissonance. It doesn't actually feel right. And I'm actually convinced that with, with the news, like a one-hour news program, the reason that they have to insert, you know, a feel-good story partway through is because we can only handle, we can only handle so much on reports of war zones and political unrest and natural disasters and horrific crimes and politicians' latest tweets. Right? We can only take so much of that. So about 40 minutes into the one-hour news program, what do we get? The feel-good story where the researchers dressed up as pandas to tend to the baby panda cub. And we go, ah, oh, humanity isn't completely lost. That's adorable, you know? But we're hardwired for stories. Humanity are hardwired for stories of good triumphing over evil. You know this, Right? You're hardwired for it to resolve, for the dissonance to stop, for the minor key to be transitioned to a major key, for the story to culminate and end with triumph. So if we're hardwired for stories of good triumphing over evil, why is that? Now, now many answers are posited 
But I am here to say that I am convinced that the most compelling answer to the deepest longings in our souls is found in the story of the Bible, and that's what makes it the greatest story ever. So the four movements over the last four weeks that we've been looking at are creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And I said in our first week that it's actually a story the church has largely forgotten over the last 150 years, or at least truncated into the two middle movements of fall and redemption. But when we only truncate the story into fall and redemption, we actually miss out on the robust, rounded story that leads us from very beginning to the very end. As a result, when we truncate the story, we don't know what we were created to do originally and where we are going to end up eternally when God brings his story to a close. I mean, they're pretty important movements, no? So while we live and work in the third movement of redemption, we look forward and work toward the final and fourth movement of restoration. And understanding that, understanding that it informs the way we live our lives here and now, not as killing time before we get to heaven, but participating in the work of redemption that will culminate in God making all things new. What is restoration? Ultimately, it's God making all things new. I find it fascinating in a perplexing way that the majority of people on the planet believe that heaven exists and want to go there when they die, but when you ask them what it will be like, they either have a vague answer or no answer at all. Isn't it odd that we think about and know next to nothing about the eternal aspect of our lives? If we're hardwired for a happy ending to the story, which we are, then we would do well to learn what the Bible says about the future of the redeemed. We would do well to look in and say, what is this restoration in its fullness? So if you have a Bible, why don't you open it to Revelation chapter 22? I'll give you a hint. Last chapter. Let's hear how it ends. Hey, let's hear how it ends. And if you have a physical Bible with you or have it on a screen, we're going to be spending a lot of time, all of our time this morning in Revelation 21 and 22. But I just want to read you these five verses to start in Revelation 22. Says this, this is the apostle John speaking. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. What a tree. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. That's not some super weird apocalyptic thing. It just simply means the intimacy will be that close right before them, could not be closer and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. 
As I read that to you, you'll probably notice some of the descriptions sound a lot like um, the Garden of Eden. Tree and bearing fruit and river and right, cultivation and all that kind of stuff. But it's not just a garden, this, this eternal city. Well, I just gave it away. It's a city. <laughs> it's not just a garden. It's a city. Do you notice that in the text? And right, a river running through the center of the city. In some ways, this future place has familiar characteristics, right? We get the language of trees and rivers, and, and yet it's some of the characteristics sound altogether more wonderful, more lovely than, than we can actually understand. And that's why um, creative minds like C.S. Lewis, I find them so helpful here. So in his Narnia series, In the Last Battle, we read this about the new creation that the pensive, uh, a Pevensey children and their cousin take in. And they're discussing with each other whether or not it's like Aslan's country. If you ask me, said Edmund, it's like somewhere in the Narnia world. I don't think those ones are so very like anything in Narnia, said Lucy. But look there, those hills, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence. Why, they're exactly like, and yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colors on them and they look further away than I remembered. And they're more, more, oh, I don't know. More like the real thing, said the Lord Degree softly. Said Lord Degree softly. More like the real thing. I think if you read Revelation 21 and 22, just on your own time, I think that's precisely the, the sense you'll get is, okay, there's some familiarity here, but this sounds even more like the real thing sounds more wonderful. So we're going to spend the next number of minutes here talking about the new heaven and the new earth or the new Jerusalem or the garden city, whatever name, heaven, whatever you want to use for it. We're going to look at, uh, to do that, we're going to look at seven features not in the garden city and seven features that are in the garden city from Revelation 21 and 22. And I, I think what we will all discover together is that things are not only being set back to how they were in the garden, but better than they were. What we see about the new creation is that it out Eden's Eden. So I'm helped by Daryl Johnson with, with some of these features and what he's written about. So let's look at these first seven features that are not in the garden city. The first thing, surprisingly, that's not in the garden city is the sea. The sea, we see that in Revelation 21, verse 1. There's no more sea. Now, in the Bible, the sea represents the forces of chaos that seek to suck the world back into the void of nothingness. The sea represents the powers at work in the universe that threaten to undo us. So I don't necessarily think it means that there will be no large bodies of water in the new heaven and the new earth. What I do believe it is saying is that the new creation where, where the new creation is, the forces of chaos will not be. The forces of chaos are gone. And if you expand that line of thinking further, it means no more earthquakes, no more typhoons, no more terrorism, no more gun violence, and on and on and on and on. Which leads naturally into the second feature that's not in the Garden City. No more tears, death, mourning, crying, or pain. 
I mean, these are the dominant markers of the old creation, the world we live in right now. I mean, who in the room hasn't been touched by them? Tears, death, mourning, crying, and pain. It's almost inconceivable for us to wrap our minds around, but everything that robs life and harms life are gone. No more heartbreak, no more debilitating pain and illness, no more cancer, no more betrayal, no more anxiety and depression, no more walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Gone. Third, Seven features that are not in the garden city. The third one is character traits and behaviors inconsistent with the kingdom of God. Chapter 21, verse 8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Here's what that means. It means that those postures, that those traits will not be in the garden city. In so many places in the New Testament, the authors warn that such character traits and behaviors would not inherit the kingdom of God. That's why last week's movement of the story was so critical. We all have some of those traits, and so we need redemption. Like, we need it. We need it. And so the kingdom of God and the new heavens and the new earth are filled with redeemed people where these traits do not exist. Now, John begins and ends, just to, just to shape what's, what's being said here a little more, uh, John begins and ends the list by calling out cowards and all liars. And I think the reason is this, is that because in his day, all someone had to, had to do to avoid persecution in the early church was persecuted so heavily, but all they had to do for that persecution to stop was confess Caesar as Lord. And so the cowardly and the liars are not in the new creation because they are those that have turned their back on the Redeemer, those who have turned their backs on the one who holds the future. But on the other hand, God says that the ones who turn to Jesus for redemption are actually considered, verse 20, chapter 21, verse 7, overcomers or conquerors. Those who overcome or conquer will inherit the things of the new creation. And he says, he will be my son because of Jesus. Those who are in Jesus will reign with Jesus. The inheritance is that you will be a sibling of Christ and you will reign with him. And so those traits will not be in the garden city. The fourth thing, this is another surprising one, that will not be in the garden city, the eternal city, is the temple. Chapter 21, verse 22, John says, and I saw no temple. Now this would have been unheard of. It would have been undreamed of in John's, John's day. And in, in many places today, a city without a temple? Why does John not see a temple? Well, we discover in the text that it's because the city itself is the temple. The whole city, the new heaven and new earth are the temple. And it goes on in verse 16 of chapter 21 to describe the new heaven and new earth with measurements and, and specifically how big, not really the point. Uh, but, but the measurements are length and width and then kind of surprisingly height. If you, if I'm not really good at this kind of stuff, figuring this out, but I'm told that makes a cube shape, those measurements. It makes a big cube. 
And so if you know your Old Testament, you're supposed to think, well, that's a strange measurement. Why is it a cube? What is it meant to make you think of? Well, in the Old Testament, the other thing that is a cube is the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. So hear this. The new creation is not merely, the city itself is not merely the temple. The city itself is the holy of holies. The whole city is where God chooses to dwell. The whole city is sacred space. Fifth, there will be no need of the sun or moon to shine upon it. I don't know what'll be in the sky. I don't know what'll be in the universe. I don't know what we'll see. I don't know if there will be things that create light. It's not really the point. The point is that there's no need for those things. Why? Well, because given that the city is the temple and that God dwells everywhere in the city, the whole city is filled with the light of Christ. Isn't that spectacular? It boggles the mind, no? God shines. Six, there will be no closed gates. No closed gates. Again, think about an ancient city. How would they protect themselves? Walls around the city, people living within, gates closed at night, protect the city. The heavenly city, no closed gates. No closed gates, no closed borders, no longer fear of foreign nations, no more conflicts. God called Israel to be a blessing to the nations, all ethnic groups of the world, and that is the commission that Jesus gave the church to go to the nations to make disciples of all of them. In fact, we read in the Gospels that Christ will return when we have actually gone to every tribe and tongue on the planet proclaiming Christ, and we get a glimpse of why here. He's going to bring in the nations, but we'll get to that. The new Jerusalem has no closed gates. The redeemed from all nations will dwell in the garden city. And seventh, there shall no longer be any curse. What restoration, hey? After Adam and Eve's disobedience, Eden came under a curse. In fact, all the ground of the earth came under a curse. Human soul came under a curse. Relationships came under a curse. Curse is the relationship between God and man. That's why Jesus had to come to, in order to redeem and repair the curse. In the new city, there will no longer be any curse. Creation will be set free from slavery to futility and frustration. And in the end, what we see is that it's all about mercy. So those are the things that are not in the Garden City. Is anyone else fired up? Okay. I'm going to be honest with you, 9 a.m., not that fired up. 10.45, expecting a lot more fired up because this only gets better. Seven things not in the Garden City. It's starting to look beautiful just knowing what's not there. Can I tell you seven things that are there, that will be there in the renewed heavens and earth? Can I do that? Oh, yes. 10.45. All right. Here's the first one. God is there. God is there. That's what we see in chapter 22, verses 2 and 3. We see that God dwells among them. It's actually the fulfillment of the promise reiterated for centuries and throughout the scriptures where God declares, I will make my home among them. And what we read is there in the new heaven and the new earth, God's dwelling place with the redeemed. 
God and the lamb, that's a reference to God the Father and Jesus who was the once for all sacrifice, the lamb who was slain, that's the language. They would make offerings over and over again in the Old Testament, but Jesus is the once for all sacrificial lamb, died to pay atonement for our sins. And what we see is that the God and the lamb are there. There are the temple. It says, and I saw no temple in the city for the Lord God, the Almighty and the lamb are its temple. That God is there means that we will be drawn into the circle of holy love that has existed forever between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we will be there too. Is that not insane? It's, it's incredible. It's, it's mind-blowing. Therefore, in the eternal city, we will, in every sense of the word, live and move and have our being in him. Second thing that will be there is radiant glory. See, wherever God manifests himself, the place shines with God's weighty character. The weighty character of God kind of made manifest, seen, is really the glory of God. And so what we see is over and over again, if you look at the descriptions of the new heaven and new earth, imagery of gems and jewels, they tell us that the whole of the new creations shimmers and shines because God's presence is everywhere. See, all that makes God be God freely flows in every part of the city. I mean, have you ever witnessed the rushing waters of the Niagara Falls or the vast expanse of the Grand Canyon or, or just seen a sunset over the ocean? Think with me about the colors and the sounds and the sense of awe from the sights and then read this and you realize all that's nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed. It's what, the best of what we see in creation is like a dull manifestation of the full manifestation of God's renewed, restored creation. John in his vision is looking for where this glory radiating throughout the city is coming from. And then he discovers that it's all coming from the lamb who was slain. Think with me. I mean, the writer of Revelation is the writer of John's gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation. And he's the beloved disciple of Jesus. And so as Jesus hung on the cross, he looks down. All the other disciples seem to abandon Jesus at the cross. But there's John. There's the mother of Jesus. And Jesus looks from the cross and says, John, I entrust the care of my mother to you. Like no one had intimacy with Jesus, like John the disciple, John the apostle. And so he's going and searching in this vision of the new heaven and the new earth. He's searching. Where is the light coming from? Where is it radiating from? And then he discovers where the light is shining most brightly and he cries out with recognition. Its lamp is the lamb. The lamp and new illuminating light to the entire city is our crucified redeemer, Jesus Christ. And when John discovers that, he just has to exclaim it. It's incredible to him. The third thing that we discover is present in the garden city is that it's physical. I didn't know what the best way to talk about it was. It's material, it's tactile, it's matter, it's tangible stuff. Stuff is there, maybe put it that way. Stuff, there's stuff there. And as you read the description, it's like there's stones and gems of colors and walls and gates and streets and fruit bearing trees and a river flowing through the city. There's a city there. See, Christianity has been referred to as the most material of all faiths, meaning the most 
earthy. God originally made us for earth, and in Jesus, God will fulfill that original intent in a renewed earth. You're made for earth. Your eternity will be earthy. In other words, your destiny is, you know, not the cream cheese commercial, sitting on a cloud, playing a harp, bored after 10 minutes, kind of a spirit orbed thing. You know, that's not your future. That's not a biblical future. The destiny of God's people is not to go to heaven, but to enter a new heaven and a new earth. Our future isn't otherworldly, it's new worldly. At Christmas, we celebrate this. We celebrate that God became human. We call it the incarnation. God the Son took on human form, humanity, flesh. And at Easter, we celebrate that Jesus rose bodily in a resurrection body, different than his Good, bo- good Friday body, sure, but it was a body. In fact, it was the prototype and guarantee of the new creation. And it's interesting. When Jesus raises, he's actually hungry and he eats with the disciples. Do you understand what that means? Steak. Steak. <laughs> for, the, for the vegetarians in the room, it means just, you know, the most wonderful produce, carrots that really taste like carrots, all that kind of stuff. Can you, like, do you understand what that means? Uh, right? What an incredible future that awaits us. Jesus in his resurrection body ate food. Jesus in his resurrection body, a physical body, certainly a prototype of the new heaven and new earth body. And so somewhat different, but physical. And Jesus ascended bodily. Did you know that Jesus is coming again? And you know what he's going to do? He's going to come back bodily. That's what's going to happen. And we will be made like him. We won't be freed from our bodies, but our bodies will be freed from the sin that causes our bodies to decay. That's what will be abolished. Not only those things, the fourth thing we see is that peoples are there. Look at verse 3 of chapter 21. Some of you will have a footnote to people in verse 3, and it'll be plural, peoples. Peoples plural, meaning of God's chosen peoples. No ethnic grouping, in other words, can, can, can bear the image of God as fully as every tribe and tongue can, right? The redeemed from every tribe and tongue gathering in this garden city together. Ethnicities will not be washed away. They will be celebrated as together, making this kind of more full, robust, beautiful vision of the image of God. That should actually say something about the way we interact with cultures as followers of Jesus. It should affect the Great Commission, knowing that we are to go to all peoples. See, John speaks in verse 24 of chapter 21 that the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. Right? Meaning they will be bearers and representatives of their respective cultures. The presence of kings signifies the presence of cultures. Now, I already said we will eat in our eternal home. And now I'm saying all of the best of cultures, nations will be brought in as well. I truly believe that the white person's palate is going to be redeemed so that we can handle spicy food. And that's going to be a wonderful thing as all the nations come and we get to eat each other. And, and people from, from Asia and Africa are going to be like, actually, your food's not all that bland. Something will be redeemed in there as well. And we'll just enjoy all of that. Okay, I digress. Um, Fifth, there is creativity. There is creativity. Peoples, kings, culture, these are all suggesting civilizations 
and all that goes with them. God's not saying, I am making all new things. You notice that, right? He says, I am making all things new. Do you know that, that Paul picks up on this language in 2 Corinthians 5, and you know what he calls redeemed people? New creations. He hasn't discarded us and put something else in. He's redeemed us. He's restored us. He will restore us fully. And I truly believe that's what he's going to do. The new heavens and the new earth is fully redeemed, fully restored. He's not making all new things. He's making all things new. Anthony Hokema, uh, the Dutch theologian, for my Dutch friends in the room, I like to throw a Dutch theologian in there every once in a while. And he said this, will there be better Beethovens on the new earth? Shall we then see better Rembrandts, better Raphaels? Shall we read better poetry, better drama, and better prose? Will scientists continue to advance in technological achievement? Will geologists continue to dig out the treasure of the earth? And will architects continue to build imposing and attractive structures? Will there be enticing new adventures in space travel? I guess that depends if SpaceX will be there, you know? And I really believe that Apple will be there because it's fully redeemed and androids will be done away with, right? <laughs> to the lake that burns with sulfur. <laughs> but yes to all the things Hokama is bringing up. Yes to vibrant, unceasing creativity. It's been said that culture is the furniture of heaven. What a statement. See, all of those who have been redeemed by Jesus will reign with Jesus forever. This was the original plan, to exercise dominion over the earth. I really believe that before the fall, the whole intention was that that Garden of Eden would become a garden city. But in our future, what is coming is an even greater, even better, even more stunning garden city. We don't know exactly what it will all look like, but we do know that in the new city, we will do it right. The, the great paradox, of course, is if there's baseball in heaven, will all the batters strike out because of the perfect pitching? Or will everybody hit a home run? Here's my very important answer. I, I don't think strikeouts are a sin. So I think the game will be actually quite similar. Just better umpire. Better, better calls. <laughs> All right, six. Let's not get off track. Six, there is life. There is life. See what happens when I go off my notes? All right, there is life, which explains all the creativity. Life is there. I get that that seems obvious, but listen, there are different Greek words for life. One is bios. That's not the word used in this text. Bios means life we inherit from our biological parents, but that decays and runs down and finally dies. But the Greek word zoe is used, which is the life that doesn't run down. Zoe is the life God has and the life God is. So when you read about the river flowing with the water of life, it's Zoe. Or the tree of life, it's Zoe. The life God has and the life God is. And so what happens is that God brings us back to his original plan for creation with the river of life flowing down the middle of the street, better, flowing directly from his throne. In the new city, we no longer live independently of God. How can we? He's everywhere. He's available. He's manifest in his presence. And he's filling us and filling space with his glory. The Apostle John saves the best for last because God is the best thing about this new and better Eden. 
And so the very last thing that he describes about the garden city is found in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 22. Those names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those whose names are will see his face. This is a renewal of walking with God in the cool of the day and then some. This is access to God like no one has ever known. So what's the seventh thing that will be there? The face of God. We will see the face of God. Faith will become sight. Now, this is important for us to see because in in the Exodus account, Moses asks precisely this, God, show me your glory. Let me see your face. And, and, And God told Moses that no human can see him and live But put him, God graciously though, takes Moses, puts him in the cleft of a rock, covers Moses' face as he passes by and then reveals himself, but really his back or some interpreted as where he just was. And that was enough that when Moses came down the mountain and others saw his face, it was beaming so brightly from seeing where God just was that they couldn't even stand it and they they couldn't look at his face. Because anyone who would see the face of God would die. But here we see the most wondrous thing of all about the new creation is what? We will see his face. But how does that work? How shall anyone see his face? I think the deepest longing of the human heart is precisely that. But how can it happen? Well, the answer is that we will be changed. See, Moses wasn't allowed to see the face of God, not because he was human and God was divine, but because he was holy and God is altogether holy but we will be changed, we will be glorified, we will be made righteous fully, completely in Christ. And therefore, 1 John 3 verse 2 is precisely right. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Something will happen to us that will make it possible to see the face of God and live. Daryl Johnson, reflecting on this incredible scene, speaks in the first person as Jesus and says, I was there at the beginning. I will be there at the end that is the beginning. I was there in the beginning as the beginning, as the source of everything else. I am there in the end as the end, as the inherent destiny of everything else. The vision is as grand and beautiful and secure as I am. It will come into being. It already is coming into being. So finally, just to make a couple application points, I want to suggest what restoration means for your future and also what restoration means for your present. It means a lot of things for your future. One is that this vision goes beyond what any of us can imagine, but it's not a fairy tale. It's not fiction. It is not wishful thinking. This vision of a new heaven and a new earth is given to us by the one who holds the future. It says multiple times, Jesus does in Revelation, I am the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the end. Therefore, if you have been redeemed, no one can undo the new life God has given to you. It's a promise. It's secure. You facing difficulty right now? Know this. Your future's glorious and it's secure here. Question for you. If you found out that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit weren't going to be in heaven, but that the water living and the trees leaves healing and the walls jasper and even loved ones there, but God not there, would you still want to go? I want you to recognize, biblically speaking, that heaven without Jesus would be nothing less than a gold-plated hell. 
This is what, this is what your future means. If you are the redeemed, Jesus is heaven. Jesus is the very definition of your eternity, of what it'll be, of why it matters and why it's good. Jesus is heaven. Now, we also see that the creation mandate is fulfilled. John concludes his final vision by returning again to the saints' vocation in the new creation. They will reign forever and ever. The eternal reign of God's people in the new Eden brings the original creation mandate to its eschatological goal, meaning the way it's all supposed to be in the end. And that's why our hearts long for it to be so in the end, because we were wired for it, and he will bring it to bear. See, I, I referred to it already, but what is the glory and honor of the nations that the kings will be dragging in? It's actually the best culture that nations make. And in the new city, the nations will be dragging in beautiful, redeemed culture. And the eternal city is going to be a city filled with the best things that are made and redeemed and will fill our hearts with joy and will glorify God. So here's the last thing I would just want to say now about what the restoration means for your future. It means cultures, not something you do as a temporary assignment. This is something you're doing in the new Jerusalem. Culture is your calling. Culture is your destiny. And we do it to the glory of God now and for eternity, meaning it will be completely fulfilling. It'll be never tainted. It'll be creating and cultivating, worshiping and adoring, ruling and reigning with Christ. That is your future and it will be stunning. So what does restoration mean now, mean right now? Well, I already, I mentioned, if that's your future and it's secure, it means you can have peace no matter what. See, see what, what the early church also did was recognize that, yes, we get to actually endeavor in this life with the dual vocation of the first commission to create and cultivate and the great commission to make disciples. And when you blend those two together with the time each of us has left with our lives, we get to do something stunning that the early church has always believed was its purpose. Tertullian, the early church father, says this of the rise of the early church, we are but of yesterday, and yet we have filled every place among you. Cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camp, tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum, we have left nothing to you but the temples of your gods. Do you see what the early church went about as with the first commission and the great commission as this dual vocation, they went and they took everything that could be redeemed and they redeemed it and all they left were empty temples to foreign gods. I don't know why you're not cheering. <laughs> Maybe it was my delivery, it wasn't quite on. Okay, in the cultural mandate, here's the thing. We're called to make things, but because of the brokenness of sin, we now do that creating work through the lens of redemption. So Christians aren't just called to create culture, but to bring redemption to culture wherever they are. Remember, if you were here, when I started with creation, I showed you a number of images, a number of slides, right, of the earth and music and dance and, and architecture and stuff. I'm going to show you some more slides. And, and the slides I'm going to show you are not just what we were created to do to create culture. It's what Christians are going about now meant to do, redeeming culture. In other words, a part of the restoration purposes of God, a participant in the making new of all things that will ultimately culminate when Jesus returns. Okay, let me show you a few. If you were to go anywhere on the planet where there's profound brokenness, you know what you will find? You will find the people of Jesus bringing redemptive culture to bear on the wounds of the world. 
So in war zones and refugee camps, you know what you will find around the world? Christians trying to bring redemptive hope in the midst of tragedy and displacement. Next slide, we see peacemakers in the Middle East, followers of Jesus, trying to bring conflict groups together to bring peace, to bring the peace of Christ, to bring peace to difficult circumstances. Next slide, we see Christians throughout the globe in places of poverty starting schools so kids can break out of poverty, giving them an education. Next slide, churches were the first to respond with help to victims of Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas. And this has been the the practice everywhere. Wherever there's been natural disasters, the people of Jesus have been there trying to bring redemption to things destroyed. In this next slide, you know what this is? This is not a man attacking a woman. This is a man shielding a woman. And when the Vegas shooter during a concert rang out bullets across thousands of people in the crowd. This man jumped and he went on her and was a human shield for her. And right as this picture was taken that went viral, he was in the process of covering her eyes from the carnage that surrounded them. Moments after this shot, he got her up, got her to safety, ran back in, took off his belt, used it as a a tourniquet for someone else who had been shot. And when he had ran out of those, he used his own fingers to plug bullet wounds. And he saw that his time, his moment in that tragedy was to bring redemption to it. Next slide. Right now, every day, There are a group of Christians in Hong Kong. And as the protests are going and the violence is escalating, these Christians are standing right there as a human shield so that the children can peacefully go to school. There are churches that are making it their mandate to get between the Chinese police and the protesters in Hong Kong. And they're taking the beating. Next slide. International Justice Mission They go about, as followers of Jesus, releasing sex traffic workers, kids, women, boys, men, kids in slave labor. They also, as a group of lawyers who work for International Justice Mission, they arrest slave traders and sex traffickers. There are incredible law enforcement officers who are using their retirement to be a part of International Justice Mission to go bring these people down with local law enforcement and their lawyers are actually bringing uh, sex traffickers and slave traders to justice in the courts in Jesus' name. And when I get to preach to you in this church, my my hope and prayer is that a bunch of kids in the room will be the next international justice mission lawyers, will be the next teachers to kids in poverty who need education. And when tragedy strikes, that you will take that cross-shaped posture of Jesus and take the bullets and take it all that you might bring redemption to bear in the ugliest of all places. I also recognize many of us are not called across the world. We are called to shine redemptive light of the gospel into the dark places in our own city finding solutions for the homeless and those in addiction, creating safe havens of support for pregnant women, pursuing full-orbed reconciliation with our indigenous neighbors, fostering and adopting children, and on and on and on and on. The culture of your home, bringing redemptive culture to your office, whatever you create, whatever you touch, bringing redemptive culture to bear on the world. See, the church is at its best when it's a place for equipping and sending people with renewed hearts to renew culture. That's why you're here. You've been redeemed. And we take on the posture of the cross, knowing we're not called to condemn the world to death. You and I are called to love it to life. It's possible. 
that the kingdom of darkness can be overcome with the kingdom of God through the power of the gospel. That's what redemption accomplished. And that's what restoration ushers in. That's your job, disciple of Jesus. With the minutes I don't have left, I would like to uh, invite you into a little exercise. Uh, my wife and I, I think you know this, are kind of weird people. And, uh, and we do this thing from time to time in our house where we call it a listening exercise. And so one person brings uh, a song and, and tells the other person, I want to do a listening exercise. And we sit there and we turn the music up and we just, you know, allowed to talk. You sit in silence and you listen to the lyrics, you listen to the melody, you let that emotion kind of envelop you and you appreciate it. So I'd like to invite you in to a listening exercise. Are you okay with that? So the rules are, I'm going to invite the band up now. They can make their noise now. The rules are sit in the silence, let the song envelop you. And as we have looked at Revelation 21 and 22, we've, we've discovered a little more a foretaste of what is to come, and I just invite you to reflect on it. Are you the redeemed? If you haven't surrendered your, Christ, your life to Christ over the course of this song, I invite you to do that. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I just invite you to, to experience what you hear and what you've heard this morning, knowing that it's your future. Let's listen. Yes, one day we will see face to face Jesus, is there a greater vision of grace? And in a moment we shall be changed Yes, in a moment we shall be changed In a moment we shall be changed On to heaven what a day of rejoicing that will be when we all sing Jesus we'll sing and shout the victory we'll sing and shout the victory Jesus' face.
face to face. 